welcome back everyone to another episode of hopefully your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is an evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here across the United States. As always, I am your host Michelle, and while I am a skeptic by nature, I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and really open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I will present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode is honestly an episode I never thought I would do. I really think that it's a little overdone. Every paranormal podcast seems to have covered it in depth. Um, now, while most of the coverage is a lot of the, you know, sensationalized things, there's not a lot of facts. There are some podcasts that have done some really good factual-based ones, but I really think that some of the story was left out, so I wanted to cover some of that and get the real story out there. In addition to that, I have had requests from a couple listeners as well as some friends who were like, I'd really like you to do an episode on this, so kind of trying to appease the masses. And the other reason I decided to do this is I'm kind of going back to the roots of why I got into the paranormal podcasting. If you listen to my first episode on Stricker Ranch, I kind of got in depth with why I got into the paranormal podcasting. And to make a long story short, it was after watching one of the new Conjuring movies. It got me really interested in some of the Warrens' cases and just the cases of the paranormal in general. So here I am going on to a Warren case. If you haven't figured it out already, I am doing the Amityville Horror House. Yes, let all your groans out. I totally understand. I have listened to them all too, but hopefully you'll stay tuned in for this one. And maybe you'll hear some more facts that you hadn't heard before or even some reports you hadn't heard before as well. Before I get into the episode, I am going to give you a disclaimer that this episode does contain gun violence, murder, including of young children, and drugs. Viewer discretion is advised. This is actually a special two-part series on the Amityville Horror House. Episode 1, I'm going to be covering the events that affected the DeFeo family. And in episode two, which will air next week, we'll be covering the Lutz family and the aftermath of their accounts in the house. Now, the reason I chose to split it in two parts is, number one, I didn't want a really long, drawn-out episode. And number two, I really wanted to give each family the justice that they deserved in giving all the facts and the paranormal reports together. So I'm going to start the first episode of this two-part series covering the DeFeo family. On November 13th of 1974, in the early hours of the morning, six out of the seven members of the DeFeo family were found murdered in their home. The only one left alive was their oldest son, who reportedly had not been home at the time. Their killer was said to have been possessed by a dark spirit. It was either the spirit of John Ketchum, or it was because the house was built over sacred burial grounds. I'm going to now present you with the facts on what happened 
to the DeFeo family without getting into the really gory details. I'll also be covering the case, the murder trial, and the aftermath of what is said to have happened after the murder. For those of you familiar with this podcast, you might know that I usually give the most widely known story, then towards the end I give the evidence supporting or debunking what is said to have happened. Well, the DeFeo case has so much going on with it that I'm going to address each point as I go. In 1925, a couple named John and Catherine Moynihan built their dream home at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. This is the home that would eventually become known as the Amityville Horror House, but not because of the DeFeo murder. The home when it was built was 3,756 square feet, featured five bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, sat on a quarter acre lot, and actually sat on the Amityville River itself. So the family had a boat dock and was able to enjoy looking out in the quiet, peaceful town. In 1960, the family decided to sell the home to another family named the Rileys. They lived there for five years until a divorce prompted the sale of the property. After that five-year period, in 1965, the DeFeo family brought the home from the Rileys. The DeFeos were an Italian Catholic family and had five children together. The father, Mr. Ronald DeFeo, worked as a service manager at a local Buick car dealership, and the car dealership was actually owned by his father-in-law named Michael Bragante Sr. Mr. DeFeo's oldest son, Ronald Jr., also worked at the dealership. Ronald was known by his nickname Butch, so to not have any confusion, I will refer to him as this nickname throughout the rest of this episode. Now, Butch was really lazy. He didn't really show up for work half the time, and if he did show up, he didn't really do a whole lot or he usually left early. He was able to do this as, of course, his dad and grandfather were the bosses and pretty much let him do whatever he wanted. He was also heavily into drugs, especially things like heroin, amphetamines, things of that nature. Butch reports his drug use was in part due to his father's abusive nature towards the entire family, and this is actually corroborated by neighbors, family, and friends who report hearing screaming coming from the house, witnessing physical assaults against both the wife and the children from the father, Mr. Ronald DeFeo Sr. In one report, Mr. DeFeo was physically engaging Mrs. DeFeo. Butch stepped in and pointed a gun at his father's face, telling him to leave his mother alone or he would shoot him. His father got really upset, stopped with Mrs. DeFeo, and went to step towards Butch. Butch ended up pulling the trigger, but luckily for Mr. DeFeo, the gun actually misfired and no one was harmed. You would think if this happened that the police might be called, right? Well, you would be wrong. They did not call the police, but did allow Butch to continue living at home, and because he was struggling with mental disorders and, you know, he wasn't really making a lot at work because he barely held his job, they began giving him a weekly allowance to help him. I mean, why not? Money solves everything, right? On the morning of November 14th of 1974, 23-year-old Butch showed up for work early. 
It was kind of unlike him. He usually drove to work in the morning with his father, but he stated he hadn't been able to sleep as he was having some stomach issues, so he figured why not go over to work and get it over with. As the day wore on, his dad hadn't showed up to work, so he attempted to call him to make sure everything was okay, but no one answered. He wasn't too concerned, and as always, he ended up leaving work early. He drove over to his girlfriend's house, and there his girlfriend's, he ended up calling his family again as he had left his house key at home and he wanted someone to let him in the house. But again, when he called, no one answered. He started getting a little worried, so he drove by the house and knocked, and it was strange no one answered because all the cars were still in the driveway. He didn't think too much of it, though. So him and his girlfriend drove out to the local shopping mall, did a few shopping errands, and then ended up stopping at a friend's house where they both went ahead and used heroin. After that, later in the day, Butch ended up going to the local bar around the corner from his house called Henry's. There he had a few drinks and began calling his family yet again. He kept complaining to the locals of the bar that he couldn't get a hold of his family, he was annoyed that he couldn't get in the house, and he was actually expressing some concern about why they weren't answering because it was really unlike them. Can you imagine it's a very busy household, the youngest child was nine, there was five of them, you know, all the things that would be going on with such a young family. He eventually left the bar and went to the house. He found that there was a window unlocked. So he crawled in and went into the home. It was still dark in the home. None of the lights had been turned on. He found that very strange. And when he went upstairs, he found both of his parents in their bed. And it appeared that they had been murdered. He immediately fled the house, drove back to the bar, and yelled for the patrons that he thought his parents had been shot and killed in the home and he needed their help. Now, the police had not been called at this point. Butch was a regular at Henry's Bar, so most of the people there knew him and didn't hesitate to hop up and help him. Butch and five other men from the bar hopped into Butch's car and drove to the house to see what had happened. The bar, again, was only a block away, so it was a quick jaunt, and when they got there, all of the men ran into the house. Many of them had been to Butch's home, so they all went up to the second floor, and when they started to get to the top, the smell just hit them in the face, so they knew it wasn't going to be good news at all. When they turned the lights on in the bedroom, they found that Butch's parents were dead. At this point, before discovering anything else in the house, a man named Joe Yeswit called the police to report the murders from the kitchen phone in the DeFeo's house. By the time the police had been called, it had been about 15 hours since the murders had been committed. Officers arrived and found the entire family had been murdered. They had all been shot with a 35 caliber Marlin rifle and all were lying dead in their beds. The victims were the father, Ronald DeFeo Sr., 43 years old, the mother, Louise DeFeo, who was only 42, their oldest daughter, Dawn, who was 18, the youngest daughter, Allison, 13, the son, Mark, who was 11, and their youngest son, John, who was only nine years old. All of the victims appeared to have died in their sleep without a struggle and without waking up. They also all appeared to be laying on their stomachs, 
and there was no signs of drugs in their system after autopsy. Neighbors also did not report the sound of gunfire, though it was said to have been having a thunderstorm that night. Per police, the gun that was used during the murders is loud enough to be heard five blocks away, but neighbors only reported hearing the DeFeo's dog barking during the night. This was a quiet neighborhood, so the gun not being heard was a bit of a shock to everyone involved in the case. This has led many to speculate that the paranormal was somehow involved in these murders being carried out. How else does one take out six people without any of them getting up or fleeing? Why did no one hear the gunfire? Why were they all similarly positioned in bed? These are a lot of odd coincidences, so there has to be something else involved, right? Well, again, I'm not going to go into the graphic details of where each family member was shot, things like that, as it really has no bearings on this story. The only detail I will give, as it shows more of a grudge towards the parents, is that the parents were each shot twice, but the kids were only shot one time each. Per police reports, Mrs. DeFeo actually appears to have woken up after her husband was shot, as she was actually turning onto her side. And Allison, she stayed in the bedroom across the hall from her parents. She appears to have turned towards the door as well as she looked to see what was happening when she was killed. And this is thought because the gunpowder burns on her show that she was likely looking down the barrel of the gun when she was killed. Now the two younger boys, they did not appear to have woken during the murders even though they did share a bedroom. And Dawn, the oldest daughter, she stayed in a bedroom on the third floor of the home She also showed some signs of having woke up before she was killed. The bodies all on their stomach is a big point of contention. Some were slightly turned, but still mainly on their stomachs. Maybe it was the paranormal, maybe someone held them at gunpoint and made them attain that position, or maybe that's how they all slept. We won't know. And you might ask why no one heard the gunshot. Now, there was a storm that night. I did look into the records of what was going on, and there was a thunderstorm and rainstorm the night that the murders happened. But it doesn't really account for the gunshots. Remember, you could have heard these five blocks away. So unless the killer or killers timed the shots perfectly, it really wouldn't account for this. Plus, while maybe someone outside the home would have thought it was lightning strike, it would have still woken the family inside of the home. The only other thing than the paranormal that I can guess is that there was a silencer used during the murders. There was not a silencer ever found or reported by police, and police were stated to have actually ruled out a silencer. Though, in my research, all I could find is that a silencer actually decreases the velocity of the bullet and leaves marks on the person when shot at close range. So I don't see where the police could have ruled it out by the bullets, the gun, or the casings found. The only way to rule it out is if there would have been marks on the person if they were shot at close range, but it doesn't appear that they were shot at close range, so I don't know how this could have immediately been ruled out. Once the murders were reported, 
Butch was a prime witness for the police. He stated that he thought that the killings were actually a mob hit that was carried out by a man named Louis Fellini, a.k.a. Tony Mazio. To protect Butch, police actually put him in locked-up protective custody because they thought that he only survived because he was not in the home at the time of the murders and they didn't want the same fate to befall Butch. The police did think that it looked like a professional hit with the need for multiple people to carry out the murders. It was also thought that the family did have some kind of connection with the Italian mafia and actually, nowadays, we do have that to light that the family did have mob relations, both on Mrs. and Mr. DeFeo's side. On Mr. DeFeo's side, his uncle was part of the biggest mob family in the area at the time, which was the Genovese family. And the mother, Mrs. DeFeo's father, Michael Brigante Sr., this is the owner of the car dealership, he was an associate of the Gambino Mafia. Later on, as things progressed, Butch would tell police that he and his father would have to assist sometimes in disposing of bodies for the mafia. So this might have come into play with the murders as well, and I'll get a little bit more into that as we go. The mob angle was actually further propelled as the seven-member family was supported only by Mr. DeFeo, who worked at the car dealership. Though the DeFeos afforded a very extravagant lifestyle. They had a large, expensive home right on the water. They had a boat. And they even gave Butch $500 a week, which in today's money, $3,000 a week. That's $12,000 a month. $12,000 a month, that's a lot of money for a 23-year-old boy to need. So imagine being able to afford $12,000 a month, plus your mortgage, plus taking care of five children. That's a lot on one man's salary. Butch further stated that Mr. Fellini, or Tony Mazio, whichever name you want to call him, had it out for him after there had been verbal altercations between the two men. For example, he stated a few weeks before this night, he had been robbed of $21,800 while on his way to make a deposit at the bank from the dealership. He was robbed and he thought it was by Mazio, though later on it was actually found that Butch had stolen the money himself with the help of a friend. Him and the friend had split the profits and used it for drug money. What was suspect about the mafia hit angle, though, is Italian mafia code actually prevents them from killing children. But, you know, this code of ethics from the mob really isn't enough to write the angle off entirely. The police did find that Butch actually owned several guns, which was well known. He was an avid hunter and he really enjoyed that, so he owned multiple guns. But what they found is that one of the guns Butch owned actually matched the description of the murder weapon. And at that point, he became a prime suspect in the killing of the family. This was also in conjunction with the fact that, again, he was a known drug user with heroin, methamphetamines, things like that. And he had also had multiple brushes with the law for things such as theft, suspected burglary, and he actually even already had several felonies on his record. 
When searching the house, the police found empty ammo cartridge boxes that matched the ammo from the crime scene in Butch's room. In addition to the police finding the gun was registered in Butch's name, that Butch had the empty cartridge boxes of ammo in his room, there was also a later investigation where police were questioning local gun shops where he had possibly purchased the gun, as well as his friends. And the officer received multiple reports that Butch had been trying to acquire or at least had been asking about getting a silencer though no one reported that he actually had acquired one. I wanted to mention this as it could lend to the theory that a silencer was used during the crime. The next day when police entered the cell, they read Butch's rights, and after he knew that they had the evidence they needed, his story immediately changed. He stated that he was actually home at the time of the murders and heard the gunshot. He was terrified, so he hid in the house until he could run away. Later, he returned to see what had happened and saw that his entire family was dead. So he collected the evidence as he thought that he was being framed for the murder of his family. Later, that same day, he stated that the mob held him at gunpoint and made him watch as they executed each member of his family. Though then, the story changed yet again, stating that the mob made him actually pull the trigger on his family members. Finally, after hours and hours of interrogation, Butch ended up confessing to the murders of killing everyone in his family. Though he later stated that the police used violent force to force his confession. And when he entered police custody, Butch was entirely free of injuries, but when they brought him in front of the judge, he looked so bad that the judge actually ordered a medical exam, which noted many injuries, bruising, and swelling all over his body. And years later, that precinct and the officers who questioned him were found to use illegal practices during investigations, making his claims very, very possible. Again, during the confession, he admitted to killing all of the six members of his family, and he even stated, quote, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast, end quote. He did not report feeling possessed or taken over by anything. That was just his statement. He committed the murders at approximately 3.15 in the morning, and he stated after the murders, he proceeded to shower change his clothes, and collect all the evidence. He went room by room collecting shell casings and putting these along with the gun, clothing, and other evidence into various pillowcases. He then went to the end of the family's boat dock and threw the rifle into the water and then put the pillowcases into a storm drain in Brooklyn, New York. After this, he went back to work, which is when he began calling his family since his dad wasn't at work. Which brings us full circle back to how the story starts. Police didn't question this as when he admitted to the crimes and told them about where he put the evidence, he drew a diagram for police to where the storm drain was. The police were able to quickly retrieve the evidence and find the pillowcases that he had stored in the storm drain. In the pillowcase, there were, of course, the cartridges and various items used during the murders, Included in the pillowcase, oddly enough, was a holster for a handgun, but there was no handgun ever found. 
On November 17, 1974, there were wiretaps that were heard from the FBI. The FBI was actually investigating the family due to their mob ties, and there was conversations heard between two family members known to have ties with the mafia. In these conversations, these two family members stated that Butch knew too much and would have to be taken out. Butch was apparently offered witness protection from the FBI for telling them what he knew, but he ended up refusing to do so. In 1975, Butch gave nine stories for what had transpired the night of the murders. They ranged from he did it alone, he did it with his friends, he did it with his girlfriend, and eventually his sister Dawn was even an accomplice. Now, Dawn didn't become an accomplice until a forensic report came about. The forensic report showed that Butch's sister Dawn had partially burned gunpowder residue on her nightgown, which could mean that she had fired the gun at least one time. Though, forensics actually showed that all the family members had gunpowder residue on them, and it was from being in proximity to the muzzle of the gun when it was fired. There was no evidence to show that she was involved, but at first, all that came out was that Dawn had the residue and it could have meant she fired the gun. From then on, Dawn became a frequent perpetrator in his continually changing story of what happened that night. Butch's grandfather, Michael Bergante Sr., hired him a lawyer to help with his case, though they wanted him to claim insanity so Butch refused and fired the lawyer. At that point, his grandfather was kind of like, well, I'm done with you. I tried to give you a good lawyer. Good luck. You can have a public defender. So Butch was assigned a lawyer named William Weber, who had never been involved in a murder investigation ever. He was cheap, though. He charged a small fee, and he stated, quote, I'm getting more out of this case from the publicity, end quote. The trial for Butch began in October of 1975 with the attorney pleading for insanity anyway. This was again against Butch's will, but his family really didn't give him the option. In court, he did admit that he had acted alone in the murders and stated, quote, I couldn't stop if I wanted to. I thought somebody was inside moving me, end quote. At the trial, they blamed Mr. DeFeo for Butch's mental state due to the years of abuse as well as his involvement with drugs. Butch claimed that he heard voices in his head telling him to do it and was even possessed at the time of the killing. He at one point stated that a demon with black hands handed him the gun. He used the insanity defense saying he heard voices stating his family was going to kill him and at one point during the trial, he was shown a picture of his mother, and he couldn't recognize her. This has led many to believe that the house made the entire family its victim and worked its evil through Butch. The psychologist for the defense concurred with the insanity defense. He stated that his client was in a state of paranoid psychosis during the murders and wasn't responsible for what had happened. Though, of course, the prosecution did not agree with this. Their psychologist stated that he was a known drug user with an antisocial personality disorder who knew what he was doing at the time of the murders, 
On November of 1975, Mr. Butch DeFeo was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder with a unanimous jury decision. He ended up being sentenced to six consecutive sentences of 25 years to life in prison with the first possibility of parole in 1999. And while he did make multiple appeals for parole, he was denied each time. From 1975 to 2007, Butch DeFeo gave at least six additional different retellings of that night, which leaves us with at least 15 retellings of what happened the night of the murders. What he said depended on who he was talking to. With family, it would be one account. With people he was inmates, it would be a different account. It just depended what he wanted to be seen as. Again, Don was involved in many of his stories, especially when he was talking to family members. And in most of these accounts, Don does most of the killings and is on drugs. Though it is reported that she had been into drugs in some way, again, there was nothing found in her toxicology report. Her motive was said to be that her father forbid her from leaving the state to be with her boyfriend and that she felt that he was ruining everyone's lives. Though again, there is no evidence of Dawn being involved in the murders, no drugs in her system, and remember, she's someone that ended up dead in her bed, not Butch. Finally, in his 2007 parole hearing, Butch stated that he could no longer recall exactly what happened the night of the murders. I could detail out each report of what he said happened that night, who he stated it to, but a lot of them are reiterations of the same thing, and it just keeps changing. Another fact for consideration is for a long time there had been speculation as to whether another gun had been used during the murders. Per ballistic reports, one of the bullets was actually heavier than the others, suggesting that it was from a 38 caliber handgun. This evidence coincided with the handgun holster that was found in the storm drain pillowcase. There was also a pillowcase that was found in an outdoor trash can that was steps from the canal, and this was found on the night the bodies were found. Since Butch used pillowcases to store his evidence, this could have been used to take this handgun to an area where it could be disposed of. This theory was speculated for a long time, and finally in 2012, someone decided to see if this was actually legitimate or not. So what they did is they went to the spot near where this trash can was by the canal, and they figured out the distance that somebody could throw it into the water. They then used advanced technology and a dive team to find the handgun. Without too much time passing, they actually did discover part of a handgun. Now, it had been in the water, though, for almost 40 years, and only part of the gun was actually found. What was found was heavily degraded, though some people at the scene stated that it did look like it could have been from a 38 caliber gun. But many times we do see what we want to see. It has never been confirmed what the gun was, what the caliber might have been, or anything, as once it was brought up out of the water, the police department immediately confiscated it. And even 10 years later, we have no reports about the gun. You may ask what Butch's motives were. 
Well, he never elaborated on this at all. Police, though, believe that it is because he wanted the money from his parents' life insurance policy, his inheritance, and the money and jewelry the family had hidden. Drug habits are pretty expensive, so this might have been a motive for him. As you might know, the drug epidemics out there cause people to do things they wouldn't normally do, breaking in and stealing things from family members and those closest to you. It's very sad, but it could be possible. I don't know why in this case, though, that he would murder the children. And another motive was said to be because his father was abusive to him. But again, neither of these theories explain why he had to murder his entire family, especially the young kids. It could have been something where he completed the murders while he was in an alcohol and drug-induced state and he didn't realize what he was doing. Some of these drugs make you act very wild. Um, things like speed or who knows what he could have been on the night of the murders. Because remember, nobody even thought he was a suspect until over 48 hours later and he wouldn't have been drug tested at that time. So we'll never know what was in his system. And sadly, the family will never get closure on this terrible tragedy because on March 12th of 2021, Butch actually ended up passing away in prison at the age of 69. We do not have his cause of death, and due to HIPAA and protection rights, that is not being disclosed to the public. He never gave his motives, and the true story from that night died with him. Many people still believe that Butch was possessed to commit the crimes the night of the murders, and one theory is because the home was built over the sacred burial grounds of the Shinnecock tribe. Other reports is that this area was where the tribe left their mad and dying people. And it is said that the spirits of these who died and or are buried here have affected the family and led to the explosive tempers, the abuse, and ultimately the murders of the DeFeo family. Now, the Shinnecock tribe's people and records show that this is actually a false claim. The Shinnecock people never stayed in Amityville. They resided in an area over 70 miles away, and their customs were to care for their sick and dying through medicine and spiritual healing. Beliefs were very important to the tribe's people. The souls, the passing, and even burial rituals were very important to them. They wouldn't have just left their people to die alone in the elements or you know, just leave them to be buried wherever they fell. They would have taken care of these people and buried them through sacred rituals. There are also no records of any other tribes that actually lived in Amityville in the area at these times. The second theory is that Butch was actually possessed by the spirit of a man named John Ketchum. John was reportedly a warlock, which for those of you who don't know, is a female witch. And he was also reportedly a Satanist. He was said to have been set to be hung during the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts. But before he was executed, he was able to somehow escape. He ended up making it to New York and settled in the Amityville area where he built a home where the DeFeo's home would eventually sit. He was said to have practiced many occult rituals here and some people even report that he opened a portal to hell. After John Ketchum died, his body was buried somewhere on the property, though no one can tell you exactly where. 
Now you might ask, where did all of this come from about John? Well, no one seems to really know. It seems to be one of those legends that sprung up and becomes more elaborate as the years wear on. Him becoming a Satanist is more a modern claim, whereas it used to just be that he was a warlock. Now, there was a man by the name of John Ketchum that did live in Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is about 13 miles from Salem. That would have just been about a three-hour journey by horse, so definitely doable for him to be taken to the Salem Witch Trials. Though, there are no records of him being involved in the witch trials. He was actually in the local government in Massachusetts, but he moved to Long Island to be near his family. He lived in Huntington Township, which is actually 18 miles from Amityville, which in those days, 18 miles is a lot. Right now, that might just be your drive to work, but again, you have a car. You're not walking or taking your horse. That was the only John Ketchum that could be found to even remotely fit who this man would have been. And we have extensive genealogy records thanks to the Ketchum Genealogy Organization. There were some census records that showed people with the last name Ketchum, but they are spelled different and none of them had the proper spelling at the time or lived in Massachusetts at another time. At the end of this, I don't personally believe that there was anything supernatural about the murders. I think this was a very volatile family who had some serious, serious mental issues. I'm sure a lot of it did stem from their connection to the crime families, as both sides of the families had connections after all. I do believe that Butch was responsible for the murders in some way. He either did it himself or assisted during the murders. I also believe he was partly a scapegoat for others who were involved or a bigger cover-up, and I wonder if that's why he kept changing his story, so that we could see some common threads, or he was making sure he wasn't a rat. I mean, what happens to rats in prison or in crime families? He was also a drug addict with serious mental issues. Remember, he was diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder. And when people found out that it was Butch, even his friends weren't surprised that he did it. Instead of giving him money and hoping the issue would resolve, he needed to be somewhere where he couldn't hurt himself or anyone else. And touching again on the paranormal aspect, the previous two families who lived in the home had no reports of issues in the house, though sometimes certain people are more attuned to the spirit world. It could be possible that something was haunting the house and affected the DeFeo family, as you will find out from the upcoming reports in part two of this story, which features the Lutz family. Maybe the house caused personality changes in this family, too. To find out, you're going to have to listen to episode two of this two-part series to find out a little bit more about what has been happening up until current day with the house. Now, I will post on social media two links that you will be able to see various documents from the case. There's so much I couldn't even cover in this episode. This is one of the most well-documented cases out there. With these links, you can see a lot of what was released as far as police reports. You can see what the reports were during the murders. You can see evidence reports. You can see toxicology reports. There are so many things that are documented that you can see with this case. It makes it 
kind of overwhelming to investigate, and I will admit I came down quite a few rabbit holes while doing my research. But I will post the links, they're pretty interesting. Though, if you do click on the links and follow them, please be very careful what you're looking at. Because again, this is all of the case files that were released to people. And it does include pictures of the crime scene. And this includes pictures of the DeFeo family murders. So please be careful. Do not click on the gallery if you do not want to see such horrible things. I kind of made that mistake and wish I hadn't. So just be mindful of that. But you can see the case documents and some pretty interesting things by checking out those two links. Well, that is the episode one of the DeFeo family and the Amityville Horror House. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned a few things about the case that you hadn't learned before. I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think that Butch was possessed to commit the crimes or not. Maybe you've been able to visit the house and have a personal experience. You have other proof or facts that you were able to find. And I'd also love to hear your feedback on the episode. Maybe a suggestion you might have for a future episode. Anyway, make sure you tune in every Wednesday, especially this coming Wednesday, so you can listen to episode two, wherever you tune into podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. Please leave a five star if you really enjoyed it. And follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready and you show that you are a loyal listener. You can also follow me on social media for more information on this episode, including the pictures and links, and much, much more. You can follow on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth. You can follow on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed. Or you can always shoot an email to paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday for Episode 2 featuring the Lutz family.